Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Trash in the Attic, a podcast about stuff. I'm Charlie Gunn and each week I ask a musician to have a rummage through their loft to find some hidden gems from their past, be it an old tour poster or a work of art. I hear the stories behind these lost items. This week's episode is with Orlando Weeks. You'll know him as former frontman of the Maccabees, the much-loved guitar band who played their final farewell shows together in 2017. He's just about to release his debut solo album, A Quickening, written largely about the road to first-time fatherhood. I wouldn't exactly say Orlando is a hoarder, but he does have a moniker from Friends-style secret cupboard in his house where he stores all his stuff. He let us dive in for this week's episode. So for the purposes of this podcast, I asked you to have a rummage around the house and find some things that mean a lot to you or have have some kind of significance. And I I believe some of them are related to the record. What's the first thing that you wanted to talk about today? Well, as a little unit, we've moved around a lot. And so my baggage sort of bits and pieces has has got smaller and smaller uh, to try and make moving as as um, uncomplicated as possible that's a good skill to be able to do that I'm terrible at that yeah I mean I'm 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 still first year at it really but I'm <laughs> I I aspire to be as light moving as uh, my partner who just gets up and goes um so what what I now have is uh this this cupboard <laughs> oh wow I'm looking at what looks like a, a kind of airing cupboard with yeah some some shelves and a lot of things um cramped into quite a small space yeah a lot of people would call it rubbish but um <laughs> so the first thing you were saying is so there's this t-shirt so when we when I first started this project and once I got to a place with the songs where I felt like I needed to test them out. I booked some gigs and I put a band together and started thinking about merch. Um, And one of the things was wanting to make really one-off pieces of merch. And so these were all hand screen printed onto mostly charity shop bought t-shirts and then numbered and all that kind of stuff. And and part of the reason was just because I think it looks good. Like I, I remember there was a guy when I was started at Foundation, a Japanese friend of mine called um, Katsunobu, who had a fixation on corks, um, a, a genuinely unhealthy obsession with corks. Corks like you get in a bottle? Corks like you get in a bottle, yeah. yeah. Um, everything he did was focused around it, and he was brilliant and eccentric and playful and obsessed (laughs) anyway one of the nice things he did was uh asked other you know friends and other people in the department to bring in t-shirts and he started making prints with cork related slogans that he'd come up with what's a cork related slogan well the one i had just said corking exclamation mark uh, and that was over a, a, a different sport, like a Nike t-shirt that I had at the time. And I still have that somewhere. And I've got another one that's over like a... Anyway, so 
working with my friend Matt, who I do lots of work with, we made these. And, and I think <laughs> I held on to this one just because I think it's the most successful. And with all this new project, I'm really I'm just trying to make sure I hold on to one thing because I, I, I don't think I really did that before. So I'm trying to be a bit more of a collector of stuff at the moment. I want to hold on to them. Yeah, it's a great T-shirt. So did you? you. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Did they sell like hotcakes? I made 50 and we sold 50. So um, yeah, uh, limited (laughs) hotcakes. I I can't stop looking. I don't think this was one of the things that you wanted to talk about, but there's a box in the cupboard that just says stamps. Yeah, these are little rubbery stamps that I cut and then use as to make little prints. Right, okay. Okay, makes sense. Not a secret stamp collector. No, I, I had a bit of that, but um, I'm, that's one of the things I've grown up, I've sort of realised the older I've got is that I'm not, and I'm envious of people that are sort of obs- an obsessive. I don't know enough about one thing or a few things, and I'm, and that's probably because I'm not obsessive enough to put the time and energy into delving deep enough and um, and uh what's the closest thing well it's that that question that people ask is like what would your specialist subject in mastermind be mm. and it would go badly for me uh <laughs> there was a period where I, I thought that i would start trying to really get obsessed into british birds of prey oh okay but i mean that lasted all of a weekend wait how old are you at this point Oh, I'm in my mid-twenties. Right, okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Yeah. For a minute I thought, oh, maybe you were about nine or ten, but no. No, which which even then would have felt like <laughs> uh, fluff, you know, but... Um... <laughs> oh, I need to get this back on track, don't I? Um... <laughs> yeah. We have, I believe, in your cupboard, a badge Oh, yeah. A pot of badges. So I found these uh, and I had forgotten and has some good stuff in here. Like, can you see this? This is... Okay, yeah. It's a yellow pin badge with a number one in the middle and I can't read what it says. So this is the John Lidbetter 6th Annual Stone Skimming Competition 2005. And that is number one. Uh, unfortunately, that is not because I won <laughs> and was placed ranked first, but because I got there the earliest and signed up earliest and was first to go. Oh, so it um, wasn't like you bought that from a charity shop. That was an actual. No, this is this is this is proof that I paid my entry fee and went first in the competition. That you must have some confidence in your stone skimming ability to go first. I will and to enter the competition in the first place. It's the uh, folly of youth, isn't it? It's that kind of, and I, and and as well, I went on my own. Like this is, <laughs> this is like a, I guess I was nineteen or something. I was and turning up, and it was early on a Saturday morning, and probably not feeling amazing. On Brighton Beach. And on Brighton Beach, so maybe I was t- just twenty, but um, yeah. So there, there I was. Uh, and uh, and you, I remember you, you got uh, three stones which you had to pick in a certain amount of time from that mm. beach, 
and then you and it was your cumulative score and I got I think I got 12. How do you get the points? How many bounces? Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I just I mean That's really No, that that is a very good story, but I want I'm not I'm not done asking questions about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can understand that. Yeah. Um what was the competition like and what sort of demographic of people had entered the competition? I mean, this is a, 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 a stone-skimming competition where the people that have organised it made badges in advance. Like, it's that sort of tells you everything that you need to know. But, um, but I think it was... I think I had fun. I held on to the badge for a long time. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so the fact that I went down there and I was first, got my badge, threw my stones, played my part, I'm very proud of it, you know. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Were you living with the band at that point? Did you all live together in Brighton? No, we didn't. We, but Brighton's so small that you you were sort of each other's neighbours. But I think this would have been Moleskine, so I probably got a bus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like Brighton very much. Do you miss living by the sea? Uh, when I left Brighton, I, I definitely felt like I'd had enough of it, and I liked coming back to London, and it felt exciting that point in the in a, in the kind of the band's life. But whenever I go back there, I've had funny things like I remember going back there to see my friend George, and this must have been five years ago, and at the train station is usually where they have the the, the flea market, and I think going through the train station, going through there and, and buying the trombone that is all over the quick, uh, over a quickening, over the record, was bought. Right. And, and I feel like every time I go to Brighton, there's something that I buy that ends up being really useful. Yeah, that's cool. Never did and, and you learned, was it trumpet at school? Yeah, I did trumpet when I was really small, until I was about 12, I think. And I, and, and I can't, re- I mean, I can play it well enough to, to use it as a, as, a, as a very blunt tool. Hmm. Can you play an instrument? Um, not really. I learnt the drums for a while at school. I was in a band for a bit, but I don't think I was very good. I also learnt guitar for a bit. I mean, you don't need to know about that, probably. <laughs> <laughs> The next item that you wanted to talk about was related to um, the book that you made, The Gritterman. Oh, yeah. I'm not even sure I can get it down, but it's a beautifully made model town or model village based entirely around the descriptions of an imagined place from the book that I made. Wow. And, it, and I didn't commission it. I, these, they're, they're called uh, postcard models and um yeah it's just the most beautiful extraordinary touching thing that has ever come out the other side of me making something that's brilliant so it's a it's a model of your drawings of the, vi- the... Of the village yeah so it's wow. got all in, all of the places that i mention in the in the story are there so there's a uh police station and a snooker hall and a uh, 
graveyard and a um, scrapyard and you know all the anyway. Um, this is the book, uh, the illustrated story that you yes. created, which is about a man just before Christmas who is responsible for gritting the roads. Roads, yeah, that's the one. Do you know anything about them or why they did that? <laughs> I mean, obviously they're a fan of the story, but were they Maccabees fans? Because that was one of the first things you put out afterwards, right? Yeah, so um, all I know is that they made that and sent... I can't remember whether they sent me a link to it or, or just put a picture up. And, anyway, and I said, well, what are you going to do with it? And they didn't really know... And so I said, well, can I buy it off you? And one day my plan is to, I want to build a, a, a kind of coffee table that's deep enough to put that into it and then have a glass over the top of it because it, it lights up. Like it has a, there's a... Wow. Yeah, you can plug it in and all of the houses light up and all the street lights light up. And it's just, the, it's like, it's by far the best thing I own. Yeah, that's really so, great. It's better than a drawing of your face, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you had Paul Whitehouse narrate that story. Was he was he always someone that you want had in mind, and then you just approached him and he said yes, or was he someone you knew anyway? Uh, no, I I think I had a weird link to him through my then manager, and I think I'd always thought that what I wanted was uh, someone like a singer that could act and. John, my then manager, was like, no, what about coming at it from the other side? I, I, don't, I think there are very few people that don't haven't heard of and don't sort of love Paul Whitehouse, from my generation anyway. And um, so even just the idea that I would go and sit and have a coffee with him and he would have looked at stuff I'd made was exciting. And then he was such a sweetheart and incredibly enthusiastic about the project and, yeah, such a pleasure. Do you listen to music as you approach making music or do you find that you can't really do that or it's sort of, it's off-putting? Um, when I'm making something or when I have been making records, I, I feel like it only adds to the a pressure or only points out things that I'm not succeeding at. Or And, and so I think making, for me, making records or making anything, is a huge part of it is just sustaining the confidence not getting the wobbles you know so I, d I don't want to suddenly tailspin into a kind of introspective nothing's good enough moment and and I think that is more likely to happen if I'm listening to beautiful things watching amazing things hearing more eloquent people than I speak about things that are more complicated than I can begin to imagine you know like, <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I sort of bubble myself a bit yeah, I can see that. I think a lot of people as well say that they don't like listening to things because they sort of subconsciously will steal bits from people's songs and then they'll be like, oh, I've written a thing. And it's like, oh, no, that's that thing I listen to. I remember with Ma with Max that I'd taken in, taking in something that I was really happy with 
and then realizing when we started playing it that it was just say no from Grange Hill <laughs> uh, somehow I'd, I'd just completely ripped it off <laughs> I, mean, all, I mean probably almost word for word so uh, but yeah I um, that didn't make yeah <laughs> it's very catchy yeah. it's very catchy yeah yeah and it's got a message so yeah <laughs> uh, the song yeah. that never was thankfully um i think also you've been not not content with just writing a new record you've also been creating another book is that right well this is mainly after like whilst making the record one of the things that because i don't have a proper proper musical training is that i can't i can't use the language that other that it would be nice to be able to use, really. I mean, to be able to refer to things, um, given their give them their proper name. But so what I end up having to do is use a lot of visual references to try and explain what I want something to sound like. And sometimes with songs, I find that uh, um, um, that visual is is much stronger. And there's a song on the record called Moon's Opera. And the, that that is a, the case with that one. Is I re I could really see it, and um, and so once the record was sort of finished, I had started doing drawings during the recording, but now used a bit of this lockdown as a as a chance to really make it. And I, I I worry that this I'm sure other people's things on this podcast is just nice stuff they've found, and I worry that I'm just banging on about things that I'm making or have made but uh, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, well, I don't know it, it is what it is we're too far into I can't go back now but um, <laughs> I think also the thing that I'm doing is I really want to finish this one there's so many projects that I'll get going with and never finish and I think that by talking about this I will also you know it's, I've, if I tell you I'm going to do it and it's on your podcast it's another reason why I can't back out of finishing it. What's the idea of it? What's it going to be? Did I read that it was partly sketches of your partner during pregnancy, or did I make that up? No, there was there was bits of that definitely, and about um, so much of that time was so real. In what way? Well, just that you don't. It's it's sort of making sure you don't miss that appointment, and it's. Um, making sure that you take that red book with you to that thing and keeping a, a mind on diet and you know like all these things that are really important but they're also not super glamorous or romantic or um, in interesting. Uh, anyway so part of Moon's Opera was about allowing a bit more fantasy into the into the experience and into the recollection of it in a way that like never-ending story or that kind of film has an, can sort of flip between very straightforward uh, boy reading in the back of a library or something, isn't he? And then just a sort of giant ferret with a... Uh, is that what that is, a ferret? I always thought... I think, is he called Falchior? I think he's a ferret. I don't know, yeah, I thought he was a sort of flying dog, but maybe a ferret's more accurate. Anyway, yes, you were saying. Introduce a bit more fantasy into yeah, just, yeah, so I think that's that's what the, the book is going to 
reflect is going to taking inspiration from things more along the lines of Gulliver's travels. Will it be a children's book? Uh, well, I, I'm not really sure. I, that's, that's the other thing is I'm too, I'm not far enough along. I just have a lot. I just have a ton of drawings, and I need to start compiling them and, and putting them into some kind of shape. I've heard dad friends of mine say that they weren't really able to connect fully with the idea that well there was a baby obviously they knew there was a baby coming but until they saw it and held it they didn't really feel it to be that real but would you say that was the case for you or not so much no I I felt like it was very real very quickly like I I've, and and I but I that didn't mean but like I said I, I I still th- can't really believe it sometimes now. So how that, um, and I think that realness is coming up the stairs actually. So you you get a <laughs> blast of realness in a minute. But um, I, th- I, th- I think it helped me that I was making a record about it. It meant that I had to think about it in a different way than perhaps I would have if I hadn't been making a record. And I think that um, being a, very aware that not even a baby, but someone was coming was was a like a someone like that I remember feeling that that made me think about it differently. Did you worry when you were making the record about it's obviously such a personal topic about kind of laying it all out in such an open way? Uh, yes, I did. I, I also, even in every conversation that I have about it with you or with other um, journalists or just people that are interested in the making of the record, I'm still finding my um, the boundaries of what I'm comfortable with. For instance, you know, like yeah, there are there are moments where I think I'm comfortable with something, and then it just suddenly it feels like that I'm not I'm not easy there. And sometimes that's a good thing and it's important. But um, my um, my uh, the rictus, whatever that is, like the feeling, the the tremors of that uncomfortableness, I'm quite sensitive to, and at the moment I feel like it is as much a record. I or maybe I just tell myself this, but it's it's just a record for me of about lots of the things that other people make records about. It just happens to be in this context, so it's a record about waiting for something. It's a record about questioning what love is and how. Love can come in all sorts of forms. It's a record about trying to recognise someone else's commitment. And I will have this document as a as a, something to look back on that, that has helped me not lose moments and experiences that otherwise I wouldn't remember or that wouldn't necessarily take me back to some of those moments that I am enjoying still going being taken back to by the songs. I think they'll be... An album for each year of his life. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you so much, Orlando. It's really good to chat to you. Yeah, lovely to speak to you too. Thanks for having me. So there we go. Another episode done. Thank you all for listening and thank you, Orlando, for being a part of it. I really enjoyed making that episode. I laughed a lot, as you can probably hear. 
Orlando's debut record, A Quickening, is out this Friday. That's June 12th, 2020. It's genuinely stunning, so do give it a listen. Um, It'll be on all streaming platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out the other ones in the series. There'll be a new one next week. Um, And please do subscribe, tell your friends, click follow, give it some stars. All the things, just all the things, please. Uh, Production support is by James John Deacon and the music is by Izzy B. Phillips. In the meantime, while you're waiting for another episode, check out the45.com for more music interviews, reviews, podcasts and general chat about music. <laughs>